This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker. We have Jeremy Burton, co-founder and CTO of Vanolo, that closed its Series C round in 2018 and raised over $52 million up to date. And this episode, we'll talk about this, the difference between raising your early rounds, so pre-seed and seed rounds, and raising your Series C round. And we'll also go a little bit back in time and see what Jeremy thinks was Winella's biggest mistake in their fundraising. So Jeremy, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Winella. Very happy to be here. Thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. So I'm Jeremy Burton. I'm the CTO and co-founder at Winolo. Uh, Winolo is a marketplace for on-demand labor. People often describe us as the Uber or Lyft of temp staffing, which is true in that we allow people to find jobs from a app on their smartphone. I think a better analogy in some ways, though, is to think of us as like the Tinder of temp staffing, because ultimately we're in the business of making a match between someone who wants to do a job and someone who wants a job done. And our technology is there to maximize the chances that both sides end up happy with that match. And just like on Tinder, some of those matches will be very transient. Some will perhaps go and work at a warehouse for one shift and decide that job's not for them. Sometimes uh, a worker will go and work three days a week. Sometimes they'll work there full time. And ultimately, sometimes people will be hired from Winolo to work full time at our customer, which is kind of like getting married. So um, we accommodate all of those different kinds of relationships, and uh, we've been in business since 2014. Uh, we're about 250 people. We have offices in San Francisco, Toronto, Nashville, as well as a lot of overseas operations as well. Nice. That seems like you've grew quite a bit, so congrats on that, and hope to see you IPO one day <laughs> or get acquired successfully. But first question is you know uh it's a marketplace so it has two sides the people who are hiring and the people who are you know trying to find a job so it's like twice as complicated as other products um i was wondering how did you manage to get this you know uh minimum amount of people on your platform did you do this before you raised or did you manage to do this only after you raised so answer the question in two parts so what you're referring to there is, I think, the classic chicken and egg problem of any two-sided or marketplace business. Uh, and we had a, a very simple solution in the early days of Winola when we were just starting out, which is we, as in the founders and the uh, employees, actually did uh, most of the Winola jobs. Um, and uh, my first Winola job was uh, carrying a very, very heavy cabinet up a very steep and narrow flight of stairs for another startup here in San Francisco. And what's been interesting is that has really given us a great connection to Winolo's and the challenges that they face. And we still have a policy at Winolo that every person that works at Winolo HQ has to do one Winolo job every quarter. And it really helps us understand the product from the perspective of the Winolo also keeps us very much in touch with the kind of issues that Winola was face, you know, many of whom are living paycheck to paycheck. So that's how we solved the chicken and egg is we actually provided the supply um, with our own labor. Um, nice. The history of Winolo is, is an unusual story. And in telling it, I realize it maybe doesn't provide 
much that uh, you can learn from for, for others, but I'll tell it anyway. So Winolo, unlike a lot of startups, was actually incubated inside a much bigger company. Uh, Winolo started inside the Coca-Cola company. And at the time, in 2013, uh, like many large public companies, Coca-Cola had an internal uh, incubator or accelerator program where uh, Coca-Cola executives, they would provide them with some seed funding to start a business inside Coca-Cola. And the, one of the rules was that the business had to solve a problem that Coca-Cola themselves faced in their business. So my co-founder, AJ, uh, he had worked at Coca-Cola for seven and a half years. He was accepted to um, participate and actually run this program. And Winolo was one of the ideas that uh, he came out with. Um, and Winolo was originally designed to solve a problem that Coca-Cola has with merchandising. So merchandising means going out and stocking Coca-Cola products on shelves in coolers uh, around the country, around the world. And it's actually quite a complicated problem to solve because it's very hard to predict the needs for labor in different locations. It's very weather dependent, for example. If it's a hot day, people drink uh, a lot more Coca-Cola products, the cooler needs stocking uh, more quickly. And if it runs out, then people start buying Pepsi products and no one at Coca-Cola is very happy about that. Mm -hmm. So the problem that the original version of Winola was built to solve was that problem. It became clear that this problem existed in different industries and many different companies. It's the reason that there are long lines when you're checking in for a hotel uh, in Las Vegas, for example. It's the reason that um, it's very hard to find sufficient nurses in healthcare, this problem of unpredictable needs for labor. So Coca-Cola effectively provided the seed funding um, for the business. And in 2014, we spun it out of Coca-Cola um, and it became you know, a separate business, Winolo Inc. In its, in its own right. And since then, we've mostly funded the business with more traditional venture capital. So unlike many of the startups I've been involved in, it does have this very unusual beginning. Nice. That's actually a really interesting beginning. And you're completely right. That's pretty unusual. And I think I ever had, I think I had one story like that, but it's not exactly the same. So it's still very new. Uh, and my next question was actually, uh, where did you start your fundraising process? But you already answered that. You were given seed money basically by Coca-Cola. But then I would rephrase my question. Where did you start your fundraising when you left Coca-Cola and spun off? Yeah, so at that point, we had uh, some essentially seed funding from Coca-Cola, and we needed to continue to raise money to build the business. So we were essentially looking at uh, an, an A round. And we certainly had uh, some very difficult times uh, raising that A round for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons we had a tough time was the, the area that we focus in is very much um, not... Um, Sorry, my son just walked in. I'm just going to restart that answer. <laughs> no worries. You can't be in here. Okay, he's just getting something. I'll restart. My no answer. worries, no worries. That's exactly what I was referring to. You know, when I said that, <laughs> yeah, we'll, no, we're, things we're, happen. We're things happen. No worries. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's start that one again. Can you re restate the question? Sounds good. So. Um, I uh, will um, cut the whole part out and pretend like I already asked the question. And uh, then the question sounded like, uh, so you already got seed funding from Coca-Cola. Where did you start your fundraising process when you spun off from Coca-Cola? 
Yeah, so we had essentially seed funding from Coca-Cola, but we needed to raise an A round in order to keep growing the business. And we actually had quite a, quite a hard time with that A round and a, a couple of false starts. And I think there were a number of reasons for that. I think, first of all, the market that we serve for temp staffing, and particularly for light industrial staffing, where we're thinking about the people who deliver your pizza or pack your box at a warehousing facility. It's just a market that's not familiar to Sand Hill Road and traditional venture investors. Uh, so they just didn't have a lot of familiarity with the space. Uh, there were many other uh, hot SaaS companies or other alternatives that they had the opportunity to invest in. And the other side to it, I think, is we didn't have a track record um, with uh, the kind of investors that uh, were interested in marketplace businesses and these two-sided networks. And I think they are much more complicated businesses, as you were alluding to, uh, that are more capital intensive in the early days. And we just didn't have the, the necessary network there. So we actually really struggled. Ultimately, we ended up finding um, uh, a guy called Tim Connors. Uh, Tim used to be a partner at Sequoia and then um, at various other funds and now has his own fund called Pivot North. Uh, and he has been a great um, supporter of the business. And I think the great thing you get from uh, a micro VC like Tim is because he's not working for a big uh, fund or doesn't have a huge portfolio, you get a lot of uh, very personal uh, attention and support. And he's been um, almost like a, a record producer or a movie producer that's helped the company grow and help connect us with investors for future rounds. And I think what Tim was able to do, and he's had a track record of doing this in his career, is choose um, or select co companies that are perhaps atypical um, or um, you know a different. And I think Winola was one of those. So it was great to get uh, Tim on board, and he's invested in um, all of our um, rounds that we've had subsequently, and is still on our board. Nice, that's actually great. And my next question here would be, how did you find him? So I know that finding this kind of person and making him or her join your team, like so closely working with them, this is just great. It's basically the best investor you can get, especially in the early days. But how exactly did you find him? Did you actually like go through some website looking for all the investors and sorting them out based on some metrics and then making a deeper research or was it some sort of referral so how how did you make this first contact so we found tim through normal networking i think we were introduced by another investor the irony though was i had actually met tim on a panel with him at a developer conference in back in 1999 uh, when we were both i think still in our 20s and uh, we didn't remember having met each other, so it was funny to oh, uh, nice. reconnect after all of that time. And I still have his business card, uh, his Sequoia business card, from, <laughs> the, the first uh, dot-com boom. Nice. That's actually really cool. Uh, congrats on that, by the way. Uh, but my next question was about reaching out to the first investors. So let's let's dig a little bit deeper here. So do you actually try reaching? So the investor who introduced you to team. How did you get in touch with that investor? Was he introduced to you as well? Yes, I think there was. Um, it, there were a number of investors that we had in our personal networks. I mean, I should say that Wanolo for me is startup number nine, and I'm 46 years old, so I've been doing this a while. So I'm 
I do have a pretty good uh, set of connections uh, in the investor community and my co-founders had some as well. So we had a kind of good group of people that we could talk to as the first round um, of connections. And it wasn't hard to broaden out that network quite um, wide uh, with their referrals. So for us, that the, the getting the things, getting the connections was not the issue. It was once they saw the business, they didn't really understand it because it was focusing on a space that um, was not familiar to them. That was more our problem at that stage. Mm -hmm. And did you actually try to explicitly solve that problem or did you actually just decide, you know, what uh, the numbers matter and if we have 100 means, we will find that one person who actually understands the problem or did you actually try to find someone specifically in this field or specifically someone who might understand it? Yeah, I'd love to say that there was some very careful and clever strategy, but I think honestly it became a numbers game and <laughs> happened to rub up against Tim at the right time and he happened to be in a mood to uh, entertain something that was a bit unusual. And, uh, mm -hmm. Got it. So yeah, I mean, uh, numbers games work pretty frequently, so I cannot blame you on that. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about your later uh, rounds. So outside of Coca-Cola, you only raised Series A and Series B and Series C. So how do you think, what's your major takeaway from those three rounds? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, each of those rounds is is quite different in terms of the stage we are at as a business. But I think the other thing that you always have to bear in mind is where you are in the economic cycle and where you are in the uh, VC cycle, which can be a little bit disconnected from the macro economy as a whole. So we were definitely lucky in terms of timing. I mean, during the process of raising money, we the the market was getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And when we closed our C round in 2018. I think looking back, you can kind of argue that that was at the absolute uh, peak of our of our recent cycle. Um, so we got lucky with the timing. I think you know what happens is if I compare the ends. So obviously the seed stage is very much all about promise, about vision, about ideas, about the founders and um, you know their belief in the mission and and their um, characters. And if you contrast that to Series C, Series C is very much a growth round and investors are simply trying to understand that, you know, if they put more money in, will they get more money out? And it's really based on a very deep diligence on unit economics and understanding of the unit of scale of the business uh, so they can understand the return. It's very little vision, very little um, future roadmap. It's really about repeatability of the business model. and. You know, A and B rounds are somewhere between the two. So A round, you're still, you know, expected to have some degree of product market fit. Um, you have some uh, decent uh, traction, um, but you are still um, selling on the vision of what you can be. And B round, and I think a lot of people say this, B round is in some ways the hard hardest because that's kind of your transition from that early stage uh, vision um, promise to real, repeatable, serious, uh, scalable revenue. So. Um, I'd say the, the the B round is the hardest, and we were very lucky to have Sequoia be our B round lead, um, which obviously uh, 
the brand name of Sequoia opens up a lot of doors for um, future rounds as well. Oh yes, it does. It really does. Uh, so let's talk about the thing that I mentioned in the very beginning, which is going back in time and you know looking at your previous mistakes that you've done during this fundraising. What would you do differently if you could you know back go back in time and to the time where you didn't raise a cent for that company yet? I think the the simple answer would be to say that we would try and use more of the sniper rifle and less of the shotgun. I think <laughs> ultimately we succeeded uh, due to the number game. Uh, it was obviously a very draining, tiring process with you know over a hundred uh, meetings in order to ultimately get one term sheet and get the business funded. Uh, and it, you know it's really disrupted to the business, especially in the early days where there are so few people uh, in the business. Uh, I think we, with, with a time machine, with the benefit of hindsight, we would have changed how we pitched the business and spent a lot more time uh, explaining and educating uh, investors on the market and why this very old-fashioned temp staffing market you know, was ripe for disruption, why it looked very like the taxi and limo uh, industry did before Uber and Lyft came along, um, to right. get, bring them along on the journey of understanding um, the the opportunity and the, and the TAM, rather than going straight why we're great and why, you know, we're different. I think it just was not a familiar enough space. So I think that's one, uh, one lesson that we've learned. And I think with that, um, we would then you know, with the benefit of hindsight, being more targeted on the investors that were willing to listen to that narrative and think about something different. And I think you glean that from looking at investors' history and their portfolio and the kind of businesses they've taken bets on. And it's no, um, I'm not using this in any way as criticism, but there are major funds where they have a very strong thesis on the market, they have a very strong view on the kind of businesses they want to invest in. And I think it's, it's as a founder in the early stages, it's often a waste of time to try and pitch those uh, funds, because if you're outside of their selection criteria, they, if they take the meeting at all, they're using it really just to learn as mm -hmm. well, having any serious intent or right. investing in the business. Right. I think there's no point wasting your time on those unless you want to just use them as rehearsal and and practice of your pitch, it's much better to say who are the investors that really actually would invest in this business. Right, but you know, practice is always great. I've heard many advice, I mean, many founders saying like, you know, even in our early days, we try to speak to VCs and try to get means just because there is a slight chance that they will give you an introduction. And also this is a rehearsal of a real interview. So I think that's so good. I think there are better and more less time consuming ways to do that. So like pitch events, just Google pitch events and that's it. <laughs> so probably try that way before talking to VCs, uh, but still great, great advice. Um, so let's talk about your other fundraising experiences. So Winala is not the only company you raise money for, right? Mm -hmm, that's correct. And what can you say about your other fundraising experiences? Well, I, I started my first company in 1999. Uh, I was 24 years old and I was in the UK. So a very different time, a very different place. 
there's been a lot of changes structurally in the way venture operates and a lot of um, changes in what a seed round or an A round or a B round means in terms of valuation and percentage of the company you're selling and the, the expectations of the maturity of the products and the business. So it's hard to uh, directly uh, compare points in time. I think the one lesson that I have learned over the years in doing this is, you know, despite the fact that we're in this incredibly high-tech industry using AI and machine learning and um, building all of these amazing products, the, the venture um, and investor business is still very much a people business. And it's very much based on relationships and it's very much based on um, a personal connection between investors uh, and founders. And I think you ignore that at your peril. Um, I think it's it's very important to really invest in your network. I think there are cases where, um, and I gave the example of Tim Connors, who I'd met 20 years ago. Um, you know, there there are cases where you meet someone, and then many many years later, you come back to them, and they end up introducing you to an investor or funding your business or in in some other way helping you. So I think building your network um, is very important, and really understanding that ultimately. Taking an investor, especially in an early stage, is kind of like getting married. I mean, you have to deal with them uh -huh. years and years and years. They'll be on your board. Um, so if either side of that relationship feel like it, it's not going to work, then walk away. Um, it, it is ultimately uh, you know, a relationship that has to work over a long period of time. Absolutely. And speaking of relationships, I actually wanted to ask you a question about your worst memory about fundraising. So uh, just a little bit of you know, entertainment here. What do you think, what comes into your memory when I ask you a question? What was your worst memory about the fundraising? Yeah, I actually have uh, one very clear um, worst case uh, that combines a number of um, amusing and uh, um, frustrating elements. So I won't name the the fund or the investor, but uh, during our A round funding, we, as I said, did many, many meetings and we had a meeting scheduled with uh, an investor uh, at a co-working space uh, in uh, Soma in San Francisco. Uh, the meeting was scheduled for 9 a.m. We arrived uh, early as we try and do at 8.30, we walked into the lobby and there was a morning rave going on uh, with lasers and balloons that was being <laughs> by um, a famous uh, venture capitalist, not someone we were going to meet. Uh, I wouldn't name him, um, but he had a reputation for doing these events at the time. So it was a very bizarre scene to arrive at for this, uh, this investor meeting um, to go through. We went upstairs. Uh, and we discovered that the meeting room that had been booked uh, apparently had not been booked or had been cancelled. So there was no room for the meeting. So we sat perched mm -hmm. on uh, two Ottomans in the center of this very noisy uh, co-working space. The partner from the fund that we were meeting uh, ended up being 40 minutes late. Uh, so he arrived um, at 9.40. Uh, two minutes after he got there, he got a phone call from the parking garage where he'd left his car and forgot to leave his car keys. So he had to leave again, uh, which disappeared for 10 minutes, came back. So at that point, we have 10 minutes remaining of the scheduled time. And he sat there with his uh, um, team member and they clearly had no 
um, understanding or interest in our business. And ultimately, one of my co-founders got so frustrated, he just stood up and, and walked out part of the way through. So that's a very, uh, it's very burned into my memory as a very poor experience. And fortunately, that's unusual why it's stuck, stuck in my memory. But that was definitely an interesting day. Right. Most people are at least, you know, uh, at least punctual. I, I, I hope so. <laughs> uh, but that's actually a pretty, pretty decent story, I must say. So now that we've talked about the worst memory, do you have any fun stories about fundraising that you that you remember? Yeah, I think what's been interesting just to introduce this story is I think there was for many years in venture a sense of uh, the power dynamic always being the investor is dominant and you as the band are subservient and they are, um, you know, they're the ones to um, that you have to kind of sell and it's a solely a relationship that works in, in that direction. I'm not saying that's universal, but I, I, that was definitely my experience in the, in the 90s and, and 2000s. And I think a new generation of investors has come in who really see the relationship as much more of equals or even one where the investor is a, a service provider um, to entrepreneurs and they have to win your business. Um, and that's actually, I think, been a much, that's been a very good change, a very healthy change. And the experience I had with that is actually for our B round, um, we, you know, our business was doing very well. So we were lucky that we didn't really have to go out and fundraise actually Many investors found out about us, came to us, and Sequoia came to us and really wanted to invest in our business. And in order to try and close us, uh, Jess Lee, who is the partner for Sequoia, who ultimately did the investment and sits on our board, she actually came to our office and bought us a bunch of very nice sort of thoughtful gifts, um, nicely wrapped. Um, and I really kind of felt like that was a very different uh, change um, in terms, very unexpected and different in terms of the sort of the, the tone that it sets and the sort of power dynamics. So I think it, I think times are changing, and it's it's nice to see um, that kind of approach being used as opposed to um, what what used to happen. Nice. That's actually a really positive story, and I can imagine how nice it feels to get a personalized gift from a partner from Sequoia. So <laughs> I'm getting a bit jealous here. So let's move to the next topic, which is going to be your advice to founders right now. So early stage founders are really struggling during these times because most of the capital really flows into more mature companies where it's more you know, stable, where you kind of know where the company is going. And early stage founders, what's, what would you recommend to them right now, uh, to those of, you, of them who need to raise money right now? Yeah, I think if you're an early stage um, investor, uh, sorry, early stage entrepreneur, um, you really should just keep going. I think the data is a little bit mixed. I, I have data I've seen and anecdotes I have from friends of mine who are venture investors. And actually, I think the part that's hardest is the, is the middle. I think we've seen some pretty big drops in B round. Actually, seed rounds are happening. A rounds are happening. What, what, what's problematic, and investors have told me this, is they're finding it hard to get deal flow, and they're finding it hard to do meetings successfully, due diligence successfully over Zoom. So I think they've slowed down a little bit, but they still want to invest, and there's still plenty of money um, in these funds to invest. They're just having to adapt. But I think VCs are pretty adaptable. Obviously, Silicon Valley prep prides itself on reinventing itself and being adaptable. So deals are happening. There, there are still um, 
money to invest. And recessions uh, are often good times to create startups because the incumbents, the big companies in any sector are distracted. They're having to lay off people, they're having to downsize, trim businesses that are non-core, focus on what's working. And that really means eyes mm-hmm. off the ball. So it's actually a very right. opportunity. Many great companies have been started in that um, kind of environment. Um, I think if you're a, a later stage founder, I think the advice is very different. I think if you have a startup that's still not profitable, and if you're not in the one sort of top 1% of so-called unicorns, I think the right thing to do at this point is to try and extend your runway as far as you can uh, until we can be more confident in predicting the future. There's just so much that's uncertain. And I think in for those companies, if you look back historically, often the winner of a particular category is just simply the company that outlasted the others in the difficult times. Um, so um, I think it's just all about survival. Um, if you're if you've already raised money and you're already running, just push that runway out as far as you can. Absolutely. That's actually great advice. And that's something that you can hear pretty frequently. And that's something that you have to take seriously. So, you know, try, I would recommend you just making a big list of things that you spend money on. It doesn't matter if it's like a five bucks subscription on, uh, I don't know, some simple service or if it's like a thousand dollar contract, you still have to put it on the list and then you just can see where you can trim some fat. So we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. What's that one thing that you would uh, want the the listener to do right now as soon as the episode is over? Keep going. You know, this is a long game. Um, I uh, am talking to a partner at a fund who was one of the early investors in Bill.com. And, you know, it's it's been a, a 10-year journey uh, to where they are today. So uh, it may seem like the world is falling apart and times are crazy and everything's unpredictable. But in the grand scheme of things, if you look back at history, this will be a short period. And it's a great time, as I said, to start businesses. It's a great time to um, really think about what is core, what do you need to win, focus on um, the things that are absolutely core about your business and your differentiation, and be ready for when the economy comes back, which, you know, if you again, if you look at history, it always does. So I think uh, keep going. Don't be disheartened by short-term blips that seem very intense. Absolutely. That's great advice and super positive episode. I think we got really, really great and positive attitude right here. So thanks a lot, Jeremy, for that. My call to action would be uh, my call to action would be check out our prime content channel. So we've created our paid channel for fundraising radio premium. It has, you know, those episodes that I'm recording here uh, in a very short and simple to read format with nice links and all that stuff. So it's worth five bucks per month and it helps our team to be running. So we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Jeremy, for coming up and for sharing your knowledge. I think that was a great and pretty positive and also very unique uh, experience. I mean, with Winala and it's being spun out from Coca-Cola. So thanks a lot for that and have a great day. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure.